0: It really is a great blessing, isn't it, to be assembled this morning for this purpose. In John 4, 24, we are told there that Jesus very explicitly said that God is a spirit, and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. The ultimatum, the demand that was stated, of course, by our Master asserted we must, if we're to worship Him at all, do it both in spirit and in truth. We're excited about the truthfulness of our worship in as much as It follows the pattern of Scripture, but the spirit part of it is the eagerness, the excitement, the heartfelt humility that comes from you and me as we humbly strive to engage in all these acts of worship that the Bible, of course, approves. As we come to this part of our worship service, a consideration of the Word of God, you'll notice that the title I've given to the lesson has to do with the word debate, it has to do with the word kingdom. This next slide, I hope, will fill in the details that probably have already occurred to you. The last few days of May this year, there was a public discussion held between Jack Hunnicutt and Michael Bronner. In fact, we here assembled and watched it, you may remember, and we were a bit impressed on occasion with the presentation, the thoroughness of it. But may I also say that just as surely as there were many reassuring comments made, especially by Jack, There were also some troubling ones made by Mr. Bronner. That is to say, some things that are not consistent with the teaching of the Bible. I thought it might be well for us to embed in our heart and in our understanding a reminder of some things that are the truth of the Bible and how that they help us appreciate the exquisite beauty and the remarkable way in which the Bible weaves itself together without contradiction anywhere. Some of the things that Mr. Bronner taught, or at least that he asserted, are not consistent with the Word of God, and the implications of those things are very serious. From time to time, through the, through the next few months, I'll be bringing a lesson revisiting some of the major issues that were raised that were incorrect in, in that public discussion. Today, why don't we think about the kingdom? As we do that, I hope you have your Bible. We'll be looking at several passages But you'll notice as we come to the bottom of that slide, our goal, as always, is to follow the mandate of 2 Timothy 2.15. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Our insistence is that we rightly divide that wonderful word of God. To do that, let's rehearse very carefully what was asserted during the course of that public discussion. Mr. Bronner. Emphasized. in fact, elaborated on the following point. He very clearly asserted that the church, the kingdom of God, existed before the day of Pentecost. In fact, several times he elaborated on that point. He was absolutely wrong in that. The church did not exist as the kingdom of God before the day of Pentecost. The gentleman was mistaken, and the implications are staggering. Let's develop a lesson this morning looking one more time at the New Testament timetable. And as we do that, we will look first of all at some of the verses that he attempted to use and notice how you mistakenly used them. The two passages to which he referred most carefully were Luke 17:21 and Acts 19 verse 1. At this point, let's simply comment about that Luke 17:21 passage. What does it say? It was a powerful presentation on the part of Jesus. On this occasion, he addressed some that were gathered and listening to him in his presentation. Jesus very clearly said, "The kingdom of God is within you." Now, Mr. Bronner took that to mean that the kingdom was already in existence at the time that Mr. Bronner said that, or rather, at the time Jesus said that, and thus Mr. Bronner asserted that the church. His appreciation of the kingdom existed even before Jesus died. Jesus was still talking to them on that occasion. I think we can each see the point. In addition to that, you'll notice that the reference in Acts 19.1 to a particular consideration about the disciples that were found in Ephesus now there, you and I notice, here as that missionary journey continued onward, there were some disciples found in this location in Ephesus. But you'll notice something is quickly said about their baptism. They were baptiz- baptized only under the baptism of John the Baptist. And yet the Bible calls them disciples. Mr. Bronner made this statement, well there it teaches it. Here were disciples and they had never been baptized under, of course, the authority of Jesus Christ. Mr. Bronner was mistaken again in that. In fact, as you and I come to the bottom of that slide, you can appreciate the kind of statement then that Mr. Bronner was making. Remember, the whole idea of that discussion was about baptism. Mr. Honeycutt was asserting one must be baptized in order to be forgiven of sin and therefore to be a disciple of God and to be, of course, in a position to have one's name in the Lamb's Book of Life. Mr. Bronner said baptism is not necessary for that. One could be saved without it. Well, here were these particular verses that Mr. Bronner said were conclusive in showing that you do not need to be baptized in order to be saved. Let's look at those verses and see if that's really what they teach. What is the context asserted in them? And as we move through our lesson today, let's then look at the next issue this word kingdom that occurs in Luke 17, 21. Remember, Jesus on that occasion had said the kingdom of God is within you. How does the Bible use this word kingdom? Can you and I appreciate in it then a correct understanding of what the Lord meant on that occasion? It's really not that difficult. Notice with me first of all that kingdom and the concept of it is extremely important in the word of God. To just to make note of some of the numbers, you'll appreciate that that word is used 342 times throughout the Bible, both Old and New Testament. As that word appears, it has a variety of powerful usages and remarkable teachings associated with it. Perhaps for our discussion today, you might note of that number, 158 of them are in the New Testament. And even more impressively, of that 158... 127 are in the Gospel accounts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Without doubt, then, out of all those occurrences of the word kingdom, we are left to appreciate that Jesus, during the life and times of His public teaching, He had much to say about it, emphasis laid upon it, realities touching that which it truly was. Maybe in light of those things, how is that word kingdom then used on a number of occasions? Well, first of all, there are occasions among all those uses in which we see that word kingdom as it relates to those during any age of time who were followers of that which was of God. Notice again, many times in the Old Testament the word kingdom is used. Sometimes it's the kingdom of Israel. Sometimes it is other kingdoms of that ancient era. But in all those cases that refer to God, we find the reference to a people who were devoted and dedicated to that which was of God, what He taught in His rules. Notice in particular Matthew 5 verse 3. Here we find one of the earliest references to that word in all the New Testament. It was the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus was teaching and the text simply says, in that opening beatitude, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven a pronouncement of the blessing of kingdom of heaven to those that are poor in spirit. Now there you notice, as Jesus made that teaching, He was highlighting the kind of attitude and behavior and conduct that was representative of those that were pleasing to God. In addition to that, look at the next one. In Matthew 11, verse number 12. This one is a very significant matter. I would invite you to note it with care. Matthew 11, verse number 12. Jesus speaking said, And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffereth violence, and the violent take it by force. From the lips of Jesus himself, he asserted, From the days of John the Baptist until the moment the Lord was speaking, the kingdom has been suffering violence. Clearly, Jesus was teaching some kind of appreciation about the existence of a kingdom was already in place. A group of people who were loving toward God, understanding of the specialness of His way, and here this kind of kingdom was already in existence. May I submit, that's the same thing stated in Luke 17, 21. The kingdom of God is within you. But it is with that said, might I ask you to notice, there are other passages that make a very different usage of the word kingdom. Consider these with me. The lesson text that Brother Wendell read a moment ago. In Matthew, the 16th chapter, here was a rather overwhelming scene. As Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, He entered into that area, and of course, there had already been much public discussion about who this man Jesus was. He was obviously able to work miracles. He was able to teach so authoritatively. Jesus, of course, asked those present, Whom do men say that I am? There was a wide range of public sentiment as to who He was. They quickly answered. Some say you're Jeremiah, some Elijah, some John the Baptist, some one of the prophets. There were those who were unclear about who Jesus was, and so they likened Him to Jeremiah, they likened Him to Elijah, to John the Baptist. Wasn't it true, though, that Jesus rather quickly said, But whom say ye that I am? Directing the matter personally to them, he asked, Who do you say that I am? And Peter, of course, in a rather bold and aggressive way, he said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Much to Peter's credit, he did not liken Jesus to Jeremiah, as great a man as Jeremiah was, to Elijah as great a prophet as Elijah was or even, of course, to John the Baptist. He, in fact, said, you're the Christ, you're the Messiah, you're the Anointed One. It is at that point, Jesus in reply said, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, namely that truth you just proclaimed. Flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. At that point, notice what comes next. I say unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock, the truth that has been uttered, the absolute and eternal matter that has just been stated, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven." Jesus thus promised that He would build something that was not yet in existence. He called it the church in verse 18. Notice in the next verse He says, I'm going to give you, Peter, the keys to it. And there He called it the kingdom. Whatever it was that Jesus was referring to, it was not yet at that moment in existence. He obviously called it the church. This statement then that Mr. Bronner had made that the church existed before Pentecost and perhaps even long before it, again, is an incorrect statement. Here, as Jesus promised to build this kingdom, known as the church, He said, of course, at this moment it had not yet come into existence. Let's look even further. In First Corinthians 15, verse 24, you notice that as Paul made this tremendous reflection on the resurrection and that which would occur... At the time when time shall end, he said the kingdom will be handed over to the Father. The kingdom will be. The reference is to a particular body. And remember the word kingdom just has reference to those who submit to a king. There can be kingdoms of men, but as the New Testament identifies it, there's this lovely and spiritual application to these who submit themselves to King Jesus. This kingdom will be handed over to the Father. Perhaps finally, we notice in Colossians 1.13, as Paul referenced the church in Colossae, he in fact praised God and did so in such complimentary fashion as he highlighted this truth. They had been brought out of darkness and translated into the kingdom of God's dear Son. One more reference to the kingdom. All of those, again, are very specific references to this kingdom being one and the same as the church, and it's not just a general consideration. It may be in light of that, we notice there are times that we see other references. Kingdom of heaven can simply mean heaven. Look at that reference in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 and following. References made on that occasion to a number of sins, and Paul very clearly says that those who are guilty of these will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. Same kind of idea in Galatians 5.21. May we say, in light of all those things, our keen interest at this point is to then ask in great specificity about this kingdom, when did the church begin? Before we do that, let's notice one more observation. Taking us to that second passage Mr. Bronner mentioned, in Acts 19, verse 1. As Paul came to the city of Ephesus, he did so and found disciples there. There's no question about that. The text says that he did. Who were they disciples of? The word disciple, may you and I always remember, it simply means a learner, a pupil, a follower. It's true that there have been lots of disciples through the ages. Socrates had his disciples. Plato had his disciples, that is to say individuals who were interested in his teachings and chose to adopt them. As students of the Bible, we aren't interested in being disciples of Plato or Aristotle. We're interested in being disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. There isn't any question. Paul found disciples in Acts 19.1. Who were they disciples of? As that conversation developed, they were quick to say after Paul asked them about their baptism, we were baptized by authority of John. They were were disciples of John the Baptist, not Jesus. Mr. Bronner's reference to this as individuals who became disciples of Jesus without being baptized misses the point entirely. They were disciples of John the Baptist. As you and I notice carefully the way that develops, we notice again, how clear the New Testament is in reminding each of us how significant and how important it is to obey Jesus to be His disciple. Let's develop that by noting this in Acts 6 verse 7. Even in the early days of the church, it says, Many of the priests were obedient to the faith. May we observe they were obedient to it. It's not merely that they became disciples any other way. They had to obey it. And what's more, in Acts 8, verse number 12, when Philip was preaching with such majesty and power in the area of Samaria, we remember that he had a great deal of success as the truth had come to be known so wonderfully. It is in that context, it says, There were many who, upon hearing him preach about the kingdom, doesn't it rather quickly say, that it's such that they were baptized, both men and women, all of these verses say something very different than what Mr. Bronner was claiming. These verses that identify obedience and what was involved in becoming thus a disciple point us easily to the necessity of baptism. As you and I close that slide, today we should appreciate then so easily and so very clearly that to be a disciple of Jesus, we must do what Jesus says. Well, what has Jesus said? Let's develop that as we then look at the very establishment of the church. Mr. Bronner asserted it began before Pentecost. Was he right about that? We so far have seen the answer so strongly to be indicated as no. But let's do a much more thorough job at this. When did the church you and I know of as the church Jesus established begin? Does the Bible say, If so, where? What are the details? May I suggest that upon looking at this, we shall find, again, it harmonizes so impressively with so many other sections of the Word of God. Let's begin our journey like this. It would certainly be clear to say that the specific kingdom of which we are speaking this morning, it did not begin prior to the death of Christ. Didn't Jesus say in Matthew 6, verses 9 and following, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Jesus referred then to the establishment of this kingdom you and I call the church. It was yet in the future at the time the Lord made that statement. It had not come despite the fact that other verses as we have read said the kingdom is within you. Notice again, Jesus is referring to a specific kingdom, the church, and it had not existed yet by that time. That's not all. When you and I notice initially, this kingdom we call the church, of course, was purchased with the blood of Christ. Paul told those Ephesian elders that, didn't he, in Acts 20, 28? Take heed unto yourselves and to the church, over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed the church of God, which... He hath purchased with His own blood. Question, when did the Lord shed His blood? Was it prior to His death? Mr. Bronner said the church was in existence before Jesus died. My friends, that cannot be. The Lord hadn't shed any blood yet. But once He died at Calvary, once He shed His sinless precious blood, then there would be opportunity for the establishment of that eternal body. The one, of course, recognizes the church. Let's go to that next observation. In Matthew 16 18, the text that was read in our hearing earlier, didn't Jesus say, I will build my church? So at the time of Matthew chapter 16, the church was not yet in existence. But Mr. Bronner said it was. Now, who are we going to believe, Mr. Bronner or Jesus? Jesus said it had not yet come into existence. I will build it. Future tense verb. Perhaps finally, I would invite you to notice Mark 9 verse 1. Maybe as powerfully, as directly, as strongly as any other passage we encounter this one. You can appreciate the scene with me. As Jesus was so profoundly teaching, he was now not far from the actual time of his own death. And these are the words which he said. Verily I say unto you that there be some of them that stand here which shall not taste of death till they have seen the kingdom of God come with power. As we've noted earlier, the kingdom, the church, as you and I appreciate it, wasn't in existence then, but the Lord so powerfully said, some of you who are hearing me preach this day, are still going to be alive when that kingdom comes into existence. Mark 9-1 affirms for us that even up shortly prior to his own death, the kingdom still hadn't been established, but that it was going to be within the lifetime of some of those who were hearing him preach that day. Oh, the establishment of the church. When that precious body came into existence, that brings us to the next observation. This text in Mark 9-1 goes on to say this, till they have seen the kingdom of God come with power. May I invite you to notice the emphasis on the word power. Jesus said they, some standing here on that occasion, they will be blessed to see the kingdom of God come with power. If you and I can find when the power was delivered, We shouldn't have any trouble ascertaining when the church or when the kingdom was established. Look over to Acts chapter 1, verse number 8. Acts 1, verse 8 says, But ye shall receive power, there's that word again, after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and unto the othermost parts of the earth." Maybe it's fair to notice the Lord Himself speaking on that occasion has given us another indication. He said the power will come after the Holy Spirit comes on you. And so may I suggest, if we can find in Scripture when the Holy Spirit came, delivering and bequeathing the power referenced, we should easily know when the church, when the kingdom was established. At this point, as you notice on that slide, all we need to do is look a few verses forward. Remember, we were reading in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Look at Acts chapter 2, verse 1. Turn the page over to the next chapter. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven, as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting, and there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as a fire, and it sat upon each of them, And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. You'll notice verse 4 informs us that the Holy Spirit had come on those apostles. And you'll notice as a result of that, they were bequeathed with the capability of speaking in tongues and producing utterances, evidences, of course, of the power the Spirit had brought. At that point, you'll notice that the statement of Acts one verse eight appears had been fulfilled. The Holy Spirit had come and the power along with it. Based on the promise of Mark nine one, we should be ready to see the kingdom. A few verses later, what is it that developed? You'll notice in verse number fourteen, Peter stood up and began to preach. He and the other 11, as they preached that remarkable message of Christ, they affirmed the correctness and trueness of the fact that Jesus had lived. They stated so directly that He also had died. By their own wicked hands, part of that mob gathered that day had put the Son of God to death. Peter directly told them that in verses 22 to 24. But he said, the bars of death wasn't able to hold Him. For that same God... Raised him from the dead, verse 24 tells us. Inasmuch as he raised him. That, of course, fulfilled prophecy from the days of David. And you'll notice in verses 31 and following, that same Jesus that was put to death and was resurrected now reigns on the throne of David. That's why he was raised, to reign on David's throne. May we notice he wasn't raised to wait a few thousand years and start reigning. He was raised to reign right then. You'll notice as the Lord then was raised in that fashion, we would expect the kingdom to start very quickly. When Peter closed that sermon in verse number 36, what did he say? Therefore, a word of conclusion, a word of summary. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom you've crucified, both Lord and Christ. That group that had had a part in putting him to death, he really is the Christ. He really is the Son of God. No wonder in verse number 37, it says, When they heard this, they were pricked in their heart. They were convicted and motivated to realize the terrible deed they had done. And so they cried out, Men and brethren, what shall we do? They had no idea what to do. They had been guilty of putting to death the very one sent from heaven to save the human family, and they had killed him. What are we to do to rid ourselves, our spirits, of this guilt? Isn't it fascinating? Peter had the answer. Peter wasn't in a position to say, I have no idea. Peter said in verse number 38, Repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, for the the remission of sins. Pausing at that point, you'll notice, this thing you've done is a sin, in order to have it remitted, you've got to repent and be baptized. Now, they had already believed, clearly, because they were convicted enough to cry out, what shall we do? And Peter said, you've got to repent and be baptized. It was a requirement for them to be saved might we pause and note something we then are so anxious and anticipating the establishment of the kingdom the time has come the power has come what happens in verse 41 then they that gladly received his word were baptized so thankfully a large number of that group did in fact submit to what peter commanded in verse 47 what do we see praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. You can't add to people, you can't add people to something that doesn't exist. The church was in existence by the time we reach Acts 2.47, but it hadn't been in existence as we started Acts chapter 2. The only conclusion the church began in the reality of that powerful event on the day of Pentecost as recorded in Acts chapter 2. The power had come on those apostles. They preached the unsearchable riches of Christ. And we notice the church was established just as Jesus promised it would be. At this point, as we have then come to the bottom of that slide, let's make some additional comments in this closing portion of our lesson. We, to this point, upon a reflection of Acts chapter 2 and those verses that led to it, have reached a conclusion the beautiful Church of Christ had a specific date of origin. It was the first Pentecost following the crucifixion of our Savior. As you and I studied in recent weeks, Jesus was crucified at the Passover in the spring of A.D. 30. You and I saw a whole host of verses that pointed to the convergence of that event. Not only that... You and I know from Leviticus chapter 23 that the Pentecost was reckoned as 50 days following the Sabbath of the Passover. That meant Jesus, of course, died in what you and I would call sometime, or rather the church was established on Sunday morning in early June of A.D. 30, period. It didn't establish before then and it hasn't been since. It started on that wonderful day that fulfilled prophecy. As you can see near the bottom of that slide, even verses of the Old Testament had pointed to the reality of this event. As we come near the close of our comments this morning, what was it that Isaiah had taught? In Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, as the prophet Isaiah looked down the stream of time over 700 years, he asserted the law of the Lord will go forth from Jerusalem. And when it does, the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains. May we ask, do the events of Acts chapter two harmonize with those details? Did Acts chapter 2 take place in Jerusalem? Yes. Luke 24:49 had reminded us that Jesus had taught those apostles, "You tarry in Jerusalem until you be endued with power from on high." They were waiting in Jerusalem. That's where the power came upon them. Not only that, we notice it's also true that the mountain of the Lord's house is explicitly called the church. Remember the house of the Lord. In 1 Timothy 3.15 reads like this, But if I tarry long that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar of and ground of the truth the house of god and the church of god are one and the same and yet isaiah said that that mountain of the lord's house would be established in the top of the mountains when the law went forth from jerusalem all of it takes us to acts chapter 2 notice that isaiah apparently was mistaken if mr Bronner is correct but we know jesus and the bible is always right Maybe finally, we might notice in Micah 4, verses 1 to 3. There's a repetition of that prophecy of Isaiah, and the details are exceedingly familiar. It brings us all back to this overwhelming event in Acts chapter 2. The church began on that occasion. It didn't begin before it, but it has been in existence ever since. Wasn't it true that Daniel very explicitly under the great prophecy of Daniel 2.44 said, Once established, that kingdom of God would never cease to be. You and I today live 20 centuries this side of Pentecost. 20 centuries, 2,000 years. And yet, aren't we blessed the church is still going strong. You and I are members of it. We can be thankful for that day that it began, and we can be thankful for verses like Romans 16, 16 that remind us, the churches of Christ salute you. We here are known as the Pippin Church of Christ, and we're thankful for those words, Church of Christ. Would you like to be a member of it today? Are you a faithful member of it? You can be so, you know. The entrance terms weren't determined by me or, yea, by any man. Jesus determined it. As we saw in Acts chapter 2, when Peter preached those great words that day, the answer to which he knew from their question, it says the Lord added them to church. Peter didn't do it. The other apostles didn't do it. Today, if there would be someone in this audience that's not a member of the body of Christ, not a member of the kingdom Jesus' blood purchased, we'd be so honored to assist you to become so. Those entrance terms are these, you must believe that Jesus is the Son of God. The Lord Himself said that in John 8. Not only that, you notice that you must repent just like Peter told those on Pentecost. Turn away from sin. As you turn away from it, your lifestyle, of course, will change. You'll not engage in those things you did before that are sinful. You must also confess the sweet name of Jesus as the Son of God. The Lord demanded that too in Matthew 10, verses 32 and 3. And, of course, you must be baptized. Jesus, as He pointed that nail-pierced hand of His to a world overwhelmed in sin, He said, You go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. You have to be immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins. In so doing, you make a reenactment of the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ, Romans 6, verses 3 and 4. And when you emerge from that watery grave, you are a new creature, and your old sins have been forgiven. They're no no longer accounted to you. They've been washed away. No wonder baptism is such a powerful thing, and it's what is said to save us in 1 Peter 3, 21. Today, there may be someone who, though attending to that, you've lost your way. You've stumbled and fallen into a world of sin. If those things are known publicly, why not come back to your first love, Revelation 2.5? Why not again approach and run quickly to the side of your Savior? He does demand that you repent of those sins, make appropriate confession of them, and beseech the prayers of brethren to pray to God for you. Acts chapter 8, verses 20 and following. Today, if we could be of assistance to you in any of those ways, we would invite you to come and do so at once while together we stand and while we sing.